Welcome to the Broadcast Dialogue podcast, the show all about the media industry in Canada. This episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast brought to you by Simple Booth, create a branded experience at your station events, capturing and sharing GIFs and photos with Simple Booth's photo booths and selfie stations. Learn more at MomentumMediaNetworks.com. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, Brad Danks, the CEO of Canadian specialty channel and OTT platform, OutTV. The LGBTQ network expanded its global footprint in 2018, finding success with its original content in New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, and was subsequently named Playback's Channel of the Year. Danks and I cover the challenges of being an independent Canadian operator in the current regulatory landscape and why he thinks the future of Canadian broadcasting lies in the production of original content. Well, what happened in 2018 was really an extension of what began much, much earlier. You know, we've been planning for what we believe the future of broadcasting or the future for broadcasters is for a long time, but 2018 became a big part of it. Um, Really, it comes down to the idea of taking the traditional approach to linear broadcasting and building it into the future approach, which is a direct-to-consumer model or a model through other direct-to-consumer-like platforms. And the approach that we took uh, was to concentrate on several territories which we felt would make the most sense for us. Uh, We referred to Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa as the Goldilocks territories. We said not too hot, not too cold, meaning from an economic perspective, we could have enough content on an offering there because of the size of the territories, uh, as opposed to, say, the U.S. or the U.K., which are a little more challenging. Uh, And yet the politics and the commercial terms and stuff were right. These were English-language territories, and they, um, they understood what was going on. So we saw them as sort of the best three territories with which to execute our initial strategy of moving globally. OTV has managed to endure and flourish where a lot of other specialty channels have gone through successive rebranding to find their niche, but your audience numbers are up 300% in the last two years. Can you talk about the strategy that's led to that growth? Well, I I think it comes down to a number of things. First of all, uh, what hasn't changed in the business is content. You know, you have to have good content, and we really focused on that. But I think as we move towards uh, the viability of niches, shall we call it, those niches need to be of certain types. Um, They either need to be a, a, uh, a psychographic type niche, which is like a preference for people, or a sociographic. You know, we kind of straddle both, but obviously it's a sociographic niche. And so uh, it's more efficient to market to. Uh, And when we learn what our audience likes, we can then go and do more. But um, there's a certain efficiency to it that allows us to build upon it and to combine, you know, marketing opportunities on the ground for us, things like pride and film festivals and stuff. We could have a built-in opportunity to do that. Plus, there's a lot of gay media, gay blogs and such. So... You know, we've sort of utilized what was already there and then built upon it uh, in order to build our our brand and our opportunity. I can't speak to every other one that's failed, but 
as I survey the landscape, as I do frequently, I look at other brands and I think, how are they going to make that work? You know, how are they going to find an audience large enough to grow it, or, or how are they going to find a specific type of content they can continually feed that audience with? And ultimately, the answer in many cases has been they won't. And I think that's why so many have fallen away. So you'd attribute a lot of your success then to to your audience, to that to that demographic that you're serving. Yeah, or at least it's not just our demographic, and we, when we do attribute it to that, but that was always built into the OTP business plan. Right back to when we took the network over in 2006, we felt that it was a niche opportunity that could work for all of those reasons. And as much as the digital world has grown, the reasons that we felt that we could make it work in 2006 are the same now, just more so with the digital world emerging the way it is. I want to get to the broadcasting and telecommunications legislative review in a second, but to sort of get into that, I want to talk about what it's like to be a Canadian player in an increasingly global entertainment landscape. What are the challenges of that? Well, it's interesting because the challenges for a Canadian broadcaster are primarily in Canada. The Canadian system is awful. I mean, it's the worst in the world. It's having been in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa, which, yeah, Australia in particular, is so much more market-driven, so much more open to new ideas. You know, we have this highly concentrated, vertically integrated system that, um, and, you know, we could spend all day on this and we won't, but is a disaster for Canadian broadcasters that are not vertically integrated and in the long run a disaster for them as well because it's prevented them from innovating, prevented them from moving forward. So um, I can't say enough bad things about how the Canadian marketplace was, was tilted and monopolized when we did vertical integration and all the proof is there. I mean we wouldn't have to have this big telecom hearing right now we wouldn't have to be in crisis mode if we had been smarter but as I like to put it we built a um, you know a wooden Maginot line a wooden wall to prevent a digital firestorm from arriving and now that it's here we're not ready for it but the other side because your question was global marketplace is that Canada is well positioned to compete in the global marketplace because we make great content and because we have content hubs like Vancouver and Toronto and, and lesser so, you know, Montreal, Halifax and others in the country, we have the ability to create original content, which ultimately will be the defining factor going forward. So um, in one respect, I'm very thankful that I'm Canadian. I just have had this big anvil on my back for a long time caused by, um, you know, really, really bad policies. How does vertical integration disadvantage you as a specialty channel, as an independent? Well, vertical integration essentially ended the market for services within Canada in the sense that all, all that happened was four companies were given control of the wholesale market, okay? And the, only those four companies being Bell, Shaw, Rogers, and Quebecor could decide what channels went on. So they were able to get their channels on the dial like that. If Bell wants to launch a new service, they would in a day if they take over an independent service. I mean, a good example of this is Gusto. When they acquire Gusto, all of a sudden, voila, Gusto gets all the packaging and all the you know money that they need to go forward because Bell can call up Rogers and Quebecor and say, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to take it out of your other channels, right? 
And so horse trading at a feudal level became the way, the path forward for channels. It meant that if you weren't one of those, and there's you know, three types of channels in the system. There's American channels that can negotiate based on certain market power. There's vertical integration, which was the new market power on the Canadian side. And then there was the others, which are specialty channels in Canada, which gave us no power. So it was really a death sentence that the commission at the time gave to independence. And it was based on their belief that we were all going away anyways. And that these great four wonderful companies were going to be the great international distributors of Canadian content. The last Let's Talk TV hearing actually has that sentence in it. I've quoted it back to people over the last few years and they've been stunned. I was stunned at the time, but they're stunned now because they haven't collectively lifted a finger to do international distribution. Of course, we start to see the unwind of vertical integration now and Chorus is the best example of that. Shaw has pushed it off on its own and now it's, you know, it's a standalone content company. But even then they're talking about um, addressable advertising as their solution to their problem, but they're not talking about content. And we've missed the shift because the reason vertical integration is so bad is because the markets have gone horizontal and content markets moving to the global require people who can function on a global level and companies whose primary business is internet and mobile within Canada, regulatorily protected by the way, um, are not going to become international players in content. With all due respect to whoever at the CRTC wrote that line, it's not going to happen ever. And I think we're seeing very quickly that the, the devolution of that side of the business for those companies because it just investments in them in the future don't make sense. So let's talk about OutTV's BTLR submission. In an ideal world, what do you think the best possible outcomes are from the review? Well, I think there, ha there has to be sort of two fundamental recognitions that are, that are really, really important. One, um, on the carrier side, we have to understand that I don't think that any of the Canadian services are going to be in the, in the business of offering channel packages a decade from now. Maybe they'll have a small legacy, but they're going to get out of that business. I mean, pretty soon we're all going to be independents, is one of my lines. And the reason for that is that the companies that will be competing, you know, the Amazons, the Apple, who are going to just launch their new initiative, you know, they're just going to announce it this week. Some of the other ones that are there, those technology companies are in a much better position to continually upgrade that technology. And that's the real problem for, for our, you know, our cable side is they have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in that customer base just to keep it going forward. And you know, once Amazon launches their channels this, this uh, next month in Canada, you'll see the, the numbers going down from, you know, once Amazon gets 5% or 10% of the marketplace, they'll be taking it from all of them. And if you're, if you're uh, you know, one of these companies and you have to go back to your board and say, if you're Rogers and you say, look, we need another $500 million for a new technology platform for my TV side, somebody else there is gonna say, well, we should be investing that in mobile because our, our ROI is higher or data, our ROI is higher and eventually that's gonna fall out. And we're watching this happening in the US. There's a couple of US cable companies that have given up TV altogether and have said we're not going to do that. So when that happens, there has to be a regulatory system. There has to be a structure in Canada where I can negotiate with an Amazon or a YouTube TV or an Apple and, and have 
a carriage arrangement that is there because otherwise they may have no incentive to carry us right and if they have no incentive to carry us you know where's our broadcasting system go so there has to be a much clearer you know degree of what we call must carry in the broadcasting system and in my submission to the I, I said look why is it so difficult why don't we just say to a company that wants to come and operate in Canada like an Apple who's starting their streaming service here's the Canadian broadcasting system got to put it up got to make it available on your service and so does everybody else I don't see the problem with that but the mindset is a little off off for that and and what what's happened is for 50 years all the channels were on the dial and were available and if you are old like me and you and you grew up in the 80s and you turned on your 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 box and you had all 50 channels or so in Canada and they were just all there right mm -hmm. and it didn't matter where you were in the country you got those 50 channels and maybe the number was different but they were all there right in the 1990s when the when the number of channels began to explode all of a sudden the cable companies and the satellite providers said wait a second we can't put them all on there's capacity issues here and that began the whole packaging process and I am oversimplifying it for the purposes of this but all of a sudden it shifted control of the system to them because of the scarcity of the bandwidth that period lasted about 25 years if that long where we went from capacity problems to no capacity we're now at no capacity if you talk to any of them they said we could put a million channels on you know and like YouTube does you know, maybe that's too many, but they could certainly put pretty much every, anything they want. They may not want to, and there may be other cost reasons not, but in terms of actual capacity issue, it's not an issue anymore. So why should they be the ones that are gatekeeping? They weren't before. They only got it for a reason, but they've acted like, well, this is our right. These are our, you know, and, and that was the shift. And that's also why we went with vertical integration. And we got to get rid of that. We got to unwind that. So we got to say... First and foremost, Canadian services are going to get a certain amount of, you know, going to get certain carriage and be avail be made available. And there'll be certain commercial reasonable terms that are the baseline. Can't get any worse than. Now, I'll tell you as a fact, that currently exists. That's what's going on with the Amazons. That's what's going on with the other players in the space. Everybody's got their contracts and everything is fine right now. But that could change down the road, right? That could be something that um, they decide they don't want to do for other reasons. They may want to compete with certain Canadian businesses. We could run into that too. They could say, you know, LGBT content is doing really, really well for us. We don't want to carry you anymore because we're going to start our own service, right? Those are the types of things that we, we need to prepare for. They're, they're a long way away because those companies have not reached any critical market mass but when they do they're going to try and find new ways to grow and usually that means getting rid of somebody else you know growing at somebody else's expense the other thing is the monetary side of it right you get paid within the broadcasting system from the system in some way and we're going to have to rethink how we do that uh, again in the submission i talked about i think there should be some sort of access fee or something like that if you want access to the canadian market you should you should then you know, have to pay into it something, a percentage of your profits or something like that. I know that some people jump up and down and say that'll just raise, it'll be pushed back on the consumer, but you know, people have to start realizing in the case of digital goods, there's a real marginal cost aspect to this, you know, and I see this in our business. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we make a show 
for pick a number you know let's say it's a hundred thousand an episode it may be expensive for us but say a hundred thousand an episode and we're making it we're only selling it in Canada and three or four other countries every time we go into a new territory and we earn revenue on it that's free money right and so so many of the shows that are coming in have already been paid for right so considering what distribution costs are in the digital side which is fractional um, the marginal cost of launching into Canada and having access to that market is is so low and it's so profitable for a lot of these companies for them to have to pay a portion of their revenue you know to have market access is a very simple way to then be able to say okay we're going to use this to sustain our content so um, what I'm suggesting is that we kind of recreate the what I call the virtuous circle of the current Canadian system in a different marketplace in a different way but similar principle yeah. One of the things you raise in your BTLR submission is that LGBTQ content actually has been demonetized mm. by some of the big digital companies because of complaints from advertisers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the obvious, that was obviously, that was Google and they did it on YouTube. And, you know, what had happened, as I understand it, was a group of very um, virulent, anti-homophobic, like homophobic, anti-gay, uh, you know, crusading groups in the States were following uh, different major brand sites. And if, uh, if, um, if LGBT, or, or LGBT content, I'm sorry, LGBT content on the web, so if there was a, you know, a, a blogger on, or a person on YouTube that had, you know, was a gay, uh, a gay artist and an ad for a major corporation came up, they would call the corporation say you're promoting yourself on you know gay sites and they got so extreme and so aggressive that um, YouTube changed the algorithm and said you know we're gonna just not run those ads up against that content right but they didn't tell anybody they were doing it it just became noticeable because those sites weren't getting any money and they realized afterwards they've been demonetized and this becomes a this becomes a major issue with the technology platforms because they're so good at doing these things right and we need to build a world where they can't do these things and if you're going to come to Canada and you know it's we forget as Canadians you know these companies particularly for us Amazon is Seattle very LGBTQ friendly Apple Cupertino very LGBTQ friendly I mean these are companies very openly friendly so they've been they're fine in that respect um, but we're going to have you know Tencent and Beidou soon. We're going to have other large platforms from around the world um, that are that are coming in, and and that may not be a bad thing. But they have to be. They have to adhere to our rules, right? And if we don't create a structure that says you want to come into Canada, here are the rules. Well, we don't want to play by those rules. Or the other one I hear is, oh, you, no one can look at our algorithm. It's you know, it's just all nonsense, right? The answer is fine. Don't come. Right? Canada's a much richer market than people give credit for. It's the second largest U.S. export market for content. The chances of them not coming are zero. Somebody else will fill that hole. Stop being so Canadian and stand up for yourselves for a change, right? You say in your submission that the tech giants are easier to deal with than the Canadian BDUs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look. Uh, I'd rather go in for a colonoscopy than deal with one of the, you know, it's, I know it's always that terrible drink you have before, but it's like that when you go in to see them. It's just awful. It's just, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are, some of them are still quite nice, but it's always the same. You know, they want to give you less. They want to explain to you why you're not adding value. The whole thing is a joke. It really is because 
look, if I'm going in to meet with a, and they'll say, well, look, your numbers are down. And I'll say, yeah, but my numbers were up when I came in, which I've done, and said, my numbers are way up. I want to raise. They said, there's no one's getting raises. So if nobody's getting raises, who's going to keep buying programming and putting investments into their shows? The whole thing is it's crazy, right? So they rig the system and then they pretend it doesn't rig. I mean, it's the least favorite phrase I have. So, well, market forces, market forces are monopoly, vertically integrated forces that we've created. Like we created a asymmetrical, stunted, monopolized market. So market forces in a broader sense are meaningless, right? So you asked, and I, I should give you a complete answer. The other thing I said is that we need to create a proper form of competition. We need to learn to, comp to, to compete over audiences. I know it's a novel concept, but mm. most of the competition right now takes place at the wholesale market. I mean, Bell and Chorus right. have channels that make, get more money than out TV from the system that have no new programming, that have one person working for them, that, that just sit there and suck money out of the system, right? Like well, lots of them. In your, in your submission, you say competition should be about pursuing audience, not gaining access to the system or improving your position in the wholesale market. That's right. And, and that's, that's really what I mean, which is that, I mean, by wholesale market, if people don't understand it, you pre-negotiate your deal with a cable company and then they put you on and then you compete for audience there. Um, if we put all the market power with two or three companies to they get the benefits at the wholesale level well first of all they get more money than to buy premium content because that's what they're usually doing anyways they're not making much they're mostly just buying other people's content so they've got the best shows right i mean this is simple but the, it seemed it seemed to elude the crtc for about a decade right that this is the reality of it right you can't you, you, which you, if they were serious, for example, and let's talk TV, they would have eliminated the wholesale market. They would have said consumers will now decide how much they pay for shows, which I think is the future. And we can talk about that down the, uh, later in the podcast. But what, what I'm really saying is, look, if we're all on, it's like if, if I'm running the 100 yard dash at the Olympics, I'd like everyone to start 100 yards away from the finish line and then we can figure out who's the fastest. But in the current system, I have to start not just 200, not just 400 meters away. I have to start outside the stadium and run in to pass the person that gets to start at the 100 yard mark. And then they go, well, it's a fair race, right? No, you know, you can't. You can't have that. And, and what we want what we want is we want, you know, we want innovation and creativity. We want people to be working hard. Like it's embarrassing that I, I have no incentive to make out TV Canada better than it is right now. There is no way I can get a dollar out of the system. If I was to raise my audience by 10,000% and everyone says, well, if you did that, you could go back and negotiate with them. No, I couldn't. It's not, it doesn't work that way. Nobody's getting raises, right? And that's what seems to be missing. There's this kind of view that, well, if that was the case, then no, you know, it doesn't work that way. What do you think of the other BTLR submissions that you've seen so far? There's kind of been a running theme in that the majority all call for, uh, you know, taxation of foreign OTT services. What, what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far? I think far? the easiest thing is to level the playing field. I mean, it's, it's unfair that you're dealing, I mean, Netflix is the greatest offender of this. They don't have any Canadian content requirements. They don't pay taxes at all. I think you're paying some sales tax in places. They don't do any contribution into the system. So that whole contribution system is something that needs to be reworked. I think everybody can agree upon that. And then you see a wide range of differing, differing uh, submissions. Um, 
it's disheartening to see some of them from the BDUs, some of them saying things like, we should be able to pick which channels, or we should be able to get rid of Canadian independence. I call this kicking the ladder down when you reach the top. There's a remarkable lack of memory with a lot of our larger BDUs. TELUS is a good example with their submission. TELUS, as most people don't seem to know, was BC TEL and Alberta TEL. They were government utilities for how many years? 80 years, right? They received billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure spending to build their business. Yet they somehow act like a market got them there. Well, it did. A regulatory utility-based sole company market, right? What a great opportunity and then to get up and then look around and say well let's get rid of all the Canadian independence I mean that's a joke I mean that's really sad but it's part of what happens when you 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 sort of cross that line between I mean that's that's to me that's a vertical integration problem you don't have the same dialogue in Australia because there they've separated the two so much and to the extent they've even got them together they've really been much more careful so Australian cable companies think about Australian content in a beneficial way. They understand that there's a relationship between them. But, but Canadian cable companies, broadly, or BDUs, have, have come very much to loathe the aspects of the Canadian system. And Quebec Corps says, let's eliminate all 9-1-Hs. I mean, have any, has any company been put in a stronger position than Quebec or in, in one sector of the economy? No, but let's just make sure that nobody else has a chance to. That's been the most disappointing part when I read submissions thinking, wow, you know, you really are sure, you know, of your ability to do everything for everybody. Um, so, I mean, to me, that was sort of the darkest part of it, but I'm hopeful that that part has been, has been dismissed. But I think there is a lot of commonality around a couple of the main themes. There's a lot of things being said that I can agree upon. I know you're a voracious reader. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book right now called Long Shots. It just came out and it's really about how um, breakthrough ideas come from the weird side of things and uh, I, I it's just one of the areas that I sort of pass into sometimes uh, I'm reading that and I'm, I've got another book that I'm sort of dissecting right now which is relevant for a book called the age of agile and it talks about agile businesses and I think this is another part that's kind of related to what we're talking about today, which is that for Canada to have successful content companies, we need to create corporations that have agility. And the, you know, the agile movement began in the early 2000s, but it was really sort of software based. And it was based on this idea that the business changes so quickly, you've got to be in constant adaptation mode and you can't be in the, the old sort of product cycle mode where you would uh, you know, put a product together and you'd release it three years later and you'd market it and then you'd let it stay in the market and then you'd pull it out and then you'd you know, get something new, which is kind of, you know, candidly kind of the, you know, what the cable companies have done with their set-top boxes over the years. Or, um, but the cycle has shortened and you even see the big tech companies I mean, how often does Apple release a new iPhone you know at least every 18 months or so and sometimes faster they'll do another iteration so it's that constant kind of iterative process and while the programming world doesn't lend itself to it perfectly structurally we have restructured as a company to function like an agile company so 
I'm spending a lot of time sort of applying those principles within and, and you know, driving the staff crazy as I always do with finding new ways to try and pick up things because we're sort of at a point right now where time is the enemy and not money and not uh, not anything else it's just you've got to move quickly so I'll give you a simple example uh, we just released a show called the whole package um, I mean simple concept for us male underwear model competition I mean, who would think that would work right uh, I'm being facetious clearly uh, we like the concept we like and we put a producer a local producer um, you know Lindsay Jackson in charge of it and she you know she worked on The Bachelor and some other things and she just really really grabbed the project and ran with it but the idea was to pick up the pace in terms of um, from beginning to end have it you know developed produced delivered within a year and so I think they were about 11 months and get it on the network because we knew we needed it the day we ordered it and we're sort of getting to that point where we have to accelerate the process and you know everything creative takes time and you can't shortcut every aspect of it but if you can if you can begin to shorten those time periods that used to be 18 months or used to be 12 months down to down to six or eight or ten it allows you to be more adaptive with the content and, and uh, you're also in I think most cases particularly with unscripted series like we're doing you know assuming you're gonna do a second season so the idea is to maybe shorten it from what used to be 14 or 12 down to six or eight and that way you've got the first season and you can say oh we should have done this we should have done that we, this would have been better next season we'll get it right right so you're in that constant mental iterative you know mode regarding the programming and it gives you a chance to take each of the shows and treat them with that sort of you know that that mindset and I think that that um, that's really really important these days and so Canadian companies that are adapting to that need to come up and adapt to that model and there's some challenges within the overall structure of the way we do things I mean the classic approach was for the broadcaster you know you write you write a check to the producer the producer takes the money makes the show delivers the show takes the international rights sells them themselves and you because you make your money just within the Canadian system those days are done you, know, you can't do that any business plan one of the smarter people in the business I asked them this question recently I'm not gonna tell you who it is but there's somebody that would know I said how does a Canadian company survive just on the intermediation of foreign content so in other words buying the content from an American studio which has been the strategy for a while and they looked at me and said they don't anyone who tells you they do is either stupid or a liar okay? that's a direct quote I won't tell you who but the point is is that if we don't become original producers of content we will not have a business and what our broadcasting system has to become is a place where those original producers of content can get their content on can compete within the Canadian marketplace and then hopefully impress their platform partners the Amazons the Apples the Roku's you know whoever the Hulu's the Netflixes that these that these programs are worthy of their international distribution situation and we'll use the, the the broadcasting system what it will become as the wellspring towards that sort of launching pad for Canadian content 
and Canadian broadcasters, I think, will, will begin to morph into, into sort of a hybrid between broadcasting, distribution, and production. In, 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 you know, candidly, this is very much what the U.S. studios are already, right? But even if you're doing it in a smaller form, and part of that is bringing the producers in and informing them of the things that you're learning in the data side and the other side, and educating them on that because the whole idea of uh, like we we almost never get a pitch from a producer that makes sense now it's very new because what makes sense to us is different we have so much information that they'll bring something to us and we'll say yeah no that won't work and they'll say oh I think it'll be great for your audience and say no we thought so too we have two shows like that they haven't done very well we we can see the drop-off points we can look at it and say but, you know, we really like you. Let's do something different together. But it changes the relationship because you know, whether we can talk about copyright and ownership and all that, it, it means that we, we're in a better position to, to, to know what's going to make sense. So we'll take some of the risk, but then we have to bring the producer in and say, look, this is going to be a risk-sharing relationship with you. It's going to be something that, I, you know, we'd like this to be a part of your year every year from now until, you know, whenever we decide 10 years from now, hopefully we're not going to make it. But we're going to, you know, we're not going to, we can't enter into a traditional relationship where we can't do what we need to do to make the show successful. And that's been working for us because we have so many good relationships with certain producers, but it doesn't fit with the classic, you know, terms of trade model that the producer association would push. And also it conflicts with a lot of the way the guild deals are structured because they're based on a world that doesn't exist anymore or exists in some respects, but doesn't exist as completely as it used to. So beyond the BTLR review, you think it's time for a sort of a generalized revamp of, of the way the entire system works? Well, I, I think even more importantly than that, it's happening whether you want it to or not. You know, we, we talk about disruptions, we talk about change, and, you know, we see real change at times. But the disruptive change that we're going through in the you know in the broadcasting business is the first major fundamental change maybe since cable came out right like it's 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 the big one right it's the big one that we kind of prepared for in the late 90s now if you remember the late 90s it was a surge of M&A activity and it all kind of ended with the AOL acquisition of Time Warner and everyone was going to line up and the studios were trying to like studios Time Warner actually seemed to think that AOL was the, and remember AOL bought Time Warner, AOL was the internet when they were really just a platform on the internet, which, you know, after writing $99 billion off, that was a hard lesson to learn, I guess. But that whole sort of euphoria went away because they realized that, that it wasn't quite it. But now it's kind of aligned in a way that everyone knows what it is, which is that you can, you can distribute globally, you can do it direct-to-consumer, you can build an audience that you can monetize, and there's enough of the other technologies that exist, and you know, and Netflix has sort of really, really grown this opportunity. Like, we couldn't have launched out TV Go without Netflix. The consumer knows they can go to a platform and sign up and put their credit card up and watch shows. Uh, Netflix really, really pushed that but we're seeing now with Hulu becoming, you know, Disney's platform, and then they'll have their sort of kids' family brand as Disney, and then we'll see what Warner Brothers is going to do is going to come in later. And then on the streaming side, you've got Amazon and Apple and probably Roku. And 
you know, and maybe a couple others, CBS All Access too, and then, you know, there may be more, but so I think what we're doing is we're pulling the whole system apart right now, and then they'll come back together again in some form, because the consumers, I think, will end up having too much fatigue in terms of subscribing to all these different platforms. I mean, the consumer ultimately wants one place to go, right? And I don't think it's going to be a big, really hard for Apple and Amazon and those to make that happen. And they know that's what's going to be. And then, you know, so we're going to have to think about that. But ultimately, it's going to look differently. And in Canada's case, it will not be controlled by the vertically integrated players, which is why that whole strategy was such a failure, because it, it essentially tried to try to create a you know, basically a wall over something that went right over it. And that's why I call it the Maginot Alliance strategy. So I think we're going to I think that's where we're going to get the end of it is is that and the end is, is about a decade away but all of those forces are now moving in such a way that I think it's gone from being unclear to opaque to you know relatively clear it's like we're seeing it now from a distance but I think we pretty much know when it reconfigures what it's going to be like at, at the end of the day and who the major players are going to be so I think that's good that we're looking at regulating it right now because I think we know enough that we can, um, apart from a whole other regulation, which, which is another topic on, on the surveillance and capitalism side, which is the, you know, the use of data. Um, but apart from that, the whole content side, I think we're beginning to see that it will be very much like traditional. There'll be you know, three levels of payment, there'll be advertising-based, there'll be subscription-based, and there'll be um, TVOD, um, transactional-based, and I think that that kind of discretionary pricing model is very, very good. And I had recommended we went to that in Canada a decade ago or further, saying that, that you know, I said, the commission, if you were really serious about consumer choice, push towards that and get rid of the wholesale marketplace instead of turning the system over to four companies, which I think would have taken us a lot further and would have left a much stronger marketplace now. But, you know, nobody listened to me. Any other notes you want to end on, Brad? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been saying this because I think, and I'll say it from a Canadian perspective, um, the heartening thing is there's a lot of Canadians that really believe we can do this. The disheartening thing is there's a lot of people in very high places who don't think we can, and I think, I, frankly, I think a lot of them are self-interested because they're they're about to start looking for bailouts. But in 1988, Canada hosted the Winter Olympics in Calgary, and we were the first country to not win a gold with our Olympic. And part of the country said, well, you know, we're a small country. We shouldn't expect any more. You know, what do you expect? Bronze medal, we should cheer on our athletes. Another part of the country said, you know what? That's wrong. We can do better. And we started an own the podium sort of campaign and we thought, well, how can we do better? And we started by selecting sports that we thought we could, you know, we could win. We started investing dollars. And now when the Winter Olympics come, Canadians expect to finish in the top three and hope that we can win it and we come close. And we need that kind of a mind sh shift change in Canada at a total level. I think there's many things the current government is doing that are right in that regard. But we need to complete it, and we need to be very unabashed about it. Uh, in their submission, Google said, you know, all of the stuff you're saying as the government, you know, you say it's all cultural policy, but it seems to be masquerading as industrial policy. My answer is, so what, right? Why should we not have the ability to make content and be part of this industry? 
I mean, any of those people that will tell you that, oh, we'll let free markets decide, it'll create, it'll create more jobs, need to come in and show me where they are, because I think that's all been proven false, right? We can develop an industrial policy which allows us to make shows, distribute shows in what is maybe the biggest opportunity in the world, but we have to be smarter than we've been, and we have to be determined and confident that we can get there. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.